Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Coming up on the Science Revolution, Brian C. Murarescu. He'll be talking about how psychedelics played a role in the founding of Christianity and how Christian beliefs and traditions may have evolved in part from incorporating pagan rituals that use psychedelic drugs. Also, senior nuclear specialist with Greenpeace, Sean Burney, is here about how Fukushima poses a threat of damage to human DNA. Psychoanalyst and clinical professor Dr. Justin Frank drops by on the psychological bases for Trump's need to sue. Stay tuned. Brian Murakesco, he's a uh, practicing lawyer, practicing international law, and the author of a book, The Immortality Key. BrianMurakesco.com is his website. It's spelled uh, M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U.com. And that's also his Twitter handle, Brian Murakesco. Brian, this fascinating hypothesis that psychedelics played a role in the creation of what we today know as modern Christianity. What started you digging into this? This is not my theory. I was a useless major in Latin and Greek and Sanskrit as an undergrad at Brown and thought I was going to be either a priest or some kind of professional philosopher for the rest of my life, but wound up going to law school. And at the back of my mind stuck this idea of the best-kept secret in history. At least that's what Houston Smith called it, one of the greatest religious scholars of the 20th century. And it came back on my radar, this concept of an ancient psychedelic sacrament, in 2007, when I was reading some of the Mm -hmm. first studies that were coming out of Johns Hopkins University about psilocybin, the active compound in so-called magic mushrooms. And what I was reading are testimonies from people, two-thirds of which were saying that it was the most meaningful experience of their entire lives, this one and only dose of psilocybin. It's strikingly similar to the kind of testimony that survives from Eleusis in ancient Greece, which welcomed everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius, this life-transforming event that erased the fear of death and guaranteed them an afterlife. Having used psychedelics as a teenager, I can tell you it was a life-altering experience for me. And certainly we have a lot of associations between what we would refer to as pagan, you know, pre-Christian religions and things like, you know, Santa Claus being a psychedelic mushroom, the Amanita mushroom, you know, the, the red and white and, and the flying reindeer and the reindeer had to process this through their urine and all that. But that's all way post-foundational Christianity. That's, you know, the contamination of Christianity in more modern times, certainly in the last thousand years by indigenous people. You talk about the sacrament. Do you think that people were like passing out magic mushrooms, here's the body of Christ, or spiked wine, here's the blood of Christ? I think there's a possibility that there was spiked wine in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, I spent the past 12 years looking for the scientific evidence. So all these wonky ideas from John Allegro in the 1970s and this trio of renegades, Gordon Watson, Albert Hoffman, who synthesizes LSD, obviously, and Carl Ruck at Boston University. In 1978, they released this idea that the ancient Greeks were using drugs to find God, and maybe they passed it on 
to the first Christians. But what inspired me in the wake of these psilocybin trials in 2007, 2008, was to look for more scientific data. So in addition to all this psychopharmacological data, I started digging into these old journals in archaeobotany and archaeochemistry, and it's this relatively new science where people are going out and digging into these excavations and finding chalices, testing them chemically to see what was in there. And what you find, time and again, are ancient specimens of wine that were, in fact, spiked with different plants and herbs. And sometimes they're, they're very innocuous, but at other times, I found this one find dated to 79 AD, for example, where the wine was spiked with opium, cannabis, henbane and black nightshade at the right dose pretty visionary stuff nightshade the belladonna and the atropine in it will produce a vivid hallucinatory state the evidence is you know increasingly large that psychedelics can be powerful therapeutic tools for things like depression anxiety post-traumatic stress disorder and in fact here in oregon one of the things that's on our ballot that we voted on this last week we mailed our ballots in was whether to legalize psilocybin in this state of course, it would take a, a federal change, but I, I'm guessing that's going to be coming. Are you seeing any kind of a trend among people who identify as Christians? I know that there are some folks who don't identify as Christians who openly, actively use these psychedelic substances as sacraments, both some Native American groups and, and some neo-pagan groups and whatnot. But within Christianity, established Christianity, in the United States or around the world? Do you see any move back toward psychoactive substances? In this country, it's impossible to forecast where this is going to go, but it's worth pointing out some of these traditions already exist in some Christian sects. If you think of the Santo Daime in Brazil, for example, kind of a syncretic blend of this ayahuasca, ayahuasca. church as their sacrament. Exactly, ayahuasca with their version of Christianity. And that's really what my, what my book is about. I mean, just as today, you can go around the world and find 33,000 denominations of Christianity. I think that was the case from the very beginning. And there were always these alternative Eucharists. Now, are those to be incorporated in some kind of modern psychedelic church? I don't know. But I know with the FDA getting involved, uh, in some of these clinical trials and what's happening in Oregon, it's going to be a very exciting next 10 years to see how this all develops. The feds are doing some of this too. Isn't the Veterans Administration experimenting with psychedelics or is it a different group that's working with veterans with PTSD? We have some NDMA trials that are now headed to phase three, looking at PTSD. And there's a number of trials already in phase two, uh, largely with psilocybin, looking at everything from anxiety, depression, to end-of-life distress. And there's a really interesting crossover there. If you think about palliative care, for example, people who are suffering at the end of life, these, these single-dose interventions, in particular, the mystical experience that happens in these experiments is directly correlated with the depth of the healthy outcome. People see a reduction in anxiety and depression from just a single intervention. And, you know, the line between one person's psychology and one person's spirituality seems to be getting thinner. And so it'll be interesting to see in five to 10 years what becomes of all this research. It is starting to pop up in end of life treatments. I, I remember when my father was dying, you know, and how much I wished I could share psychedelics with him. I proposed that to him when I was 16. He was not amused, 1967. One of the reports that I'm hearing is that people who are gravely ill, who know that they're on death's door, who try psychedelics, find that their fear of death goes away. Is that a consistent thing across the literature? 
Brian? It seems to be fairly consistent, and the whole reason I dug into this mystery, because again, it reminded me of the kind of testimony from the ancient world, where someone like Plato claimed to have witnessed, right? There's a vision of this mystery that obliterates the fear of death and transforms you into an immortal. I mean, in some of these more modern experiments, I talked to a woman named Dinah Baser, by the way, who participated in the NYU experiments. They published this joint finding with Hopkins in 2016, particularly about cancer patients receiving psilocybin. Dinah Baser, one of these volunteers, describes her one and only dose as being bathed in God's love. Now, she's an atheist, but she has this deeply life-transforming mystical experience. It's just going to be so interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, that was absolutely my experience as a teenager, and it has never left me. I'm pushing 70 here, so I'm with you. Brian Murakesko, Brian, M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U dot com is the website and the Twitter handle. The book is The Immortality Key. Brian, thanks for dropping by. In science news, Greenpeace has published a rather extraordinary new report about consequences of TEPCO, the Japanese company that owns the Fukushima reactors, dumping millions of gallons of highly radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. Pretty startling stuff. And Sean Burney, a senior nuclear specialist with Greenpeace Germany, is on the line with us. Greenpeace.org, of course, the website. Sean Burney, S-H-A-U-N-B-U-R-N-I-E is the Twitter handle for Sean. Sean, welcome to the program. Tell us about this. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, well, Greenpeace has been concerned, obviously, about Fukushima for, for many years. We're nearly 10 years after the start of the, the nuclear accident with the three reactors melting down in 2011. One of the major issues over the years has been buildup of contaminated water. This is water that has been used by TEPCO to attempt to cool the molten fuel in the reactors or underneath the reactors. But it's also the fresh water, groundwater, that has been coming onto the site over the many decades that the Fukushima reactors have been there. But of course, since 2011, there's also been a nuclear disaster. So highly contaminated that water has become. And TEPCO have been storing that water, building up in tanks at the site. And as of end of last month, around 1,000 tanks with over 1.23 million cubic meters or tons of highly contaminated water in those tanks. And over the last years, the Japanese government, TEPCO, the authorities have been assessing what they consider the best option for managing or dealing with that water. And it's been very clear for the last three or four years that their preferred option was to discharge it or dump it in the Pacific Ocean. And that's the point where we are now. The Japanese government, it says, is soon to make a decision to discharge that water into the Pacific. Tell me about carbon-14. On Star Trek, they refer to us as carbon-based life forms. We humans, we've got a lot of carbon in our bodies. What is carbon-14? Why should we worry about it? How long does it persist in the environment? And in that context, can you also explain what bioaccumulation is? So in the tank water, over one million tons, there's a whole mixture of toxic brew of radionuclides that were in the molten fuel and have come into the water. Carbon-14 is one of about 64 actual radionuclides or radioisotopes that were measured by TEPCO in the early phases of storing this water. With carbon-14, the problem that you have is it has a half-life. That's the length of time that half the radiation will decay. 
of 5,370 years. Generally, you consider a radioactive isotope hazardous for about 10 half-lives. So in this case, it's over 50,000 years that that carbon-14 will be in the environment posing a hazard. The problem is with carbon-14, as the name suggests, is it's carbon and it enters all life forms, which can be, of course, plants, animals, sea life, and also humans. And because it's around for so long, effectively it becomes accumulated in everything. And of course, there's natural carbon-14, which is due to, in large part to cosmic radiation, enormous amounts of that in the atmosphere, which in, end up in the oceans, but also in the atmosphere. This is a radioactive source that doesn't need to be discharged. It can be stored in the tanks, and that's what we've been saying. Because there's so many different types of radionuclides, each one behaves differently in the environment. Because one thing you would say on the positive level, if you can say anything positive, is any discharges will go into the Pacific Ocean. That's an enormous body of water, the world's largest body of, of water, with very powerful currents. The problem is radioactive material accumulates, it disperses, it dilutes, and then it can also reaccumulate. So different radionuclides have different so-called concentration factors. That's the amount that accumulates, bioaccumulates in marine life, in seaweed, in fish, in crustaceans, and ultimately in humans if they happen to ingest whatever that is that's concentrated. And with carbon-14, you have a very high concentration factor, maybe five, 10,000. Some indications are maybe 50,000 higher than, for example, radioactive tritium, which is a, a gas and liquid that would be discharged also if the plans go ahead. My recollection is that the body can't distinguish between strontium and calcium. And so radioactive strontium, which is heavily represented in this kind of waste, the body absorbs it, it goes into our bones and eventually produces bone cancer, that the body can't distinguish between radioactive cesium and potassium. And so the body thinks that cesium is potassium and puts it into our muscles and can cause cancer that way. A, am I remembering those two things right? Obviously, carbon, another thing that, you know, our body's made of carbon. We, we would just simply accumulate, start accumulating the carbon. And, of course, fish and, you know, anything in the oceans would be accumulating this stuff. And then if we eat that, we would be getting it. Number one, do I have those two right? And number two, what are the other elements that are highly interactive with organisms, you know, with us, you know, with living organisms, as opposed to things that might be a little yeah. harder for us to absorb? Generally, you're right, the so-called biological half-life, that refers to the amount of time that the radionuclides that are taken into the body, and if we're talking about ingested, how much time that radionuclide remains in the body. And in the case of cesium, actually, cesium can actually have a relatively short half-life for most of the cesium that you are absorbing, but there's a potential for a small fraction of that to last longer in the body. And each radionuclide behaves differently. And you mentioned strontium-90. Strontium-90 is one of the most hazardous radionuclides. It's one of the reasons there is a ban on nuclear testing, particularly from the atmospheric nuclear testing of the 1960s, because there was so much strontium-90 being released into the atmosphere. Um, so it's a bone seeker. And there's an enormous amount of strontium-90 in the contaminated water. Tokyo Electric, the Japanese government, have not wanted to talk about it for years. And the reason they didn't want to talk about it was that the technology that they deployed 
uh, it's a, a system of removing radioactivity uh, that they pump through system, uh, pipes, it's called ALPS system. It's a, a, an ion exchange system that removes radioactivity. Now, for years, they claimed that that was working very well and that they were reducing the concentrations of radioactivity in the water. In around 2018, uh, my late missed colleague, Dr. John Large, and I, we were contacted and given some access to some information from TEPCO, and John looked at the data, and he was suspicious about the levels that the TEPCO were saying was in the water. About a month later, it was disclosed uh, by investigators in Tokyo that the ALP system had actually stopped functioning uh, to the level that TEPCO had said. Oh, jeez. Amazing. Sean, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we have a hard break here at 15 after. I, I can't control it, but it's fascinating talking with you. Okay. Sean Bernie with Greenpeace okay. Germany. Okay. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for dropping by. You're welcome. Sponsoring the interview this week is... <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is Dr. Justin Frank, the psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, and the author of Trump on the Couch, along with Obama on the Couch and Bush on the Couch. His Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD. Donald Trump and his lawsuits. He's had thousands of lawsuits as a business person. Now he's suing to stop vote counts all around the country. What does this tell us about him? Well, it tells us, first of all, that he has what's called arrested development. He psychologically has not been able to develop into having a complex way of thinking. So he uses particular ways of resolving problems which involve attacking reality, attacking other people, using his money to bully people, 
it's a basic defense that ultimately cannot mature. So most of us, we develop more sophisticated defenses and ways of coping with anxiety as we get older. We use humor, ways of coping, but he has not. He essentially attacks reality because he has an unconscious that's very deep hatred of reality. That's a actually a psychotic part of a personality. What we've seen with him during his presidency and before all these lawsuits are what is the constant threat. The circumstances, the subject of the lawsuits are always different. They're whatever is going on at the time. But the process of the lawsuits have to do with his basic, fundamental, pathological uh, coping mechanism. Trump remains the same. It's an omnipotent defense. It's a defense of feeling, you are not right. I'm going to get what I want. This is what I need. This is what I have to have. And he has always been this way since he was a child. And you can see it all the way through his growth. He's grown without developing Mm -hmm. psychologically at all. So his world is very constricted into good and bad, black and white. And these defenses are very primitive. So the basic thing that's behind the lawsuit is an attempt to attack and destroy reality and to deny it and to deny its existence. It's also a way of evading any responsibility, which we've seen in him, you know, always blaming other people, always evading responsibility. But the other part is that it reflects at another unconscious level in my experience in getting to know him through this book. He has a deep need to be rescued by somebody. And in this case, and he denies it to himself. So he goes on the attack. But unconsciously, he's always being rescued by lawyers. So on the one hand, he appears to be attacking, but he's actually having other people save him and rescue him. At the deepest level, that was originally his father. Roy Cohn helped him codify that way of acting so he could really attack and look like he was an attack dog when actually all along they were holding his hand and they were rescuing him. That's interesting that you got to his father, because that was going to be my question is, you know, his father, on the one hand, was not a nurturing father. I mean, that's fairly well established. And and Mary Trump talks about this in her book. And when Donald got, you know, his ADHD or whatever it was, got bad, they just sent him off to pretend military academy to a school that, you know, where they pretended to be in the military and they wore uniforms. But on the other hand, when his casino in New Jersey was failing, His father walked in with a million dollars in cash, bought chips, in other words, handed the money over to the casino, and then walked out with the chips, you know, which was probably $30 worth of chips. So his father has rescued him. And and it turns out, I mean, you know, his big thing during the campaign was my dad gave me a million dollar loan, which I had to pay back. We discovered when the New York Times did a deep dive on the whole state and how it shook out that Trump had actually walked off with almost $450 million of his daddy's money. And this was back in the 80s when that amount of money would probably be worth seven or eight hundred million, maybe even a billion dollars today. So his dad really was rescuing him repeatedly. Is that is he seeing oh, the courts as essentially a father figure or a power figure that can well, save him? Well, he's courts are not going to rescue him, but his lawyers are going to rescue him. His uh, lawyers are like his dad. His dad came to his rescue and gave him money. Now his lawyers come to his rescue and give him 
power and force, and they help him defeat whoever the bad guys are for him. But basically, you're right. The lawyers unconsciously are like his father, who he has never gotten over this need to be rescued. And it's very deep. You're right on the money there. And that's what he did. He was rescued around the casinos. He was always saved by his father. And yet at the same time, he was also sent away by his father. The reason he was sent away to military school, though, was because his behavior was out of control, because his father, who was actually very smart and very tyrannical, both, said to himself, I cannot cope with my son. He is too much for me. His behavior is out of control. He is dangerous to his siblings. He is dangerous at school, and he has to go to some form of a military academy where they set limits for him. And that there, even though it was a sort of a pseudo-military academy, one of the things they did was he became very neat. He made his bed. They insisted on organization and structure, and he did those things. So he learned how to temper his rage and focus it a little bit more. But the impulsiveness has remained, and his need to destroy an attack is constant. His father could never control that, so he tried to temper it. Donald actually learned to try to do certain things behind his father's back still, even as an adult. But whenever they were caught, whenever he was caught, he just gave in. His father was very controlling, very powerful, and yet at the same time was his lifeline to any kind of success. So if Donald Trump is saved by his father over and over and over again through his early life, yes, we see in the election of 2016, if the allegations of our federal Justice Department, of the FBI and the Justice Department are correct, Vladimir Putin saved him in that election yes. and made him president. That's, and that's right. thus he goes to Helsinki and spends two hours holding hands in private with Putin and then comes out and says, you know, Putin's wonderful. Our intelligence agencies are full of crap. That's and, right. and is so it seems like that's kind of an extension. And Putin has become his father's surrogate. But now it looks like Putin has kind of cut him loose. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he's just pretending to. And is he turning to other people? I mean, Jared Kushner had to go to the Middle East to get his billion dollars to save his butt. It looks like Donald was involved in that. What's the dynamic? I mean, if that if that father save me dynamic was playing out large in the 2016 election, how is that playing out in this election? We just have a minute until we well, have a hard break, Dr. It's Frank. It's complicated, but the same dynamic. The dynamic is that's why he had to have extensive rallies. The rallies become like saving people. Those people who he seduces and charms with his comments and his anger, unconsciously, they are saving him and they're protecting him. They're not doing it financially, but they will do it through voting and they will make him feel stronger and more like a man. He has to do that or else he's lost. So now that he can't do the rallies and he's being losing the presidency, he's sitting and tweeting, but he's also pretty much in his room watching uh, the news. This is a person who needs to be saved. And he came across as a savior when he was trying to save the people who were abandoned by the, the coastal elites. But he was also unconsciously saving himself and getting them to save him. 
Remarkable. Dr. Justin Frank, his uh, book, Trump on the Couch, it's brilliant. Justin Frank, MD, his Twitter handle. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.